0: Welcome to the Double Loop Podcast, your source for everything about fingerprints. I'm Keanu Cape and I'm from Missouri.
1: While you're working on your comparisons, we'll talk about comparisons. I'm Eric Ray. And I'm Glenn Langenberg. Hey Glenn, how's everything going? I uh, I think you just finished watching some Oscars, is that correct? I did. Mm, I did. (laughs) Disappointment?
0: I'm getting more annoyed every year. I used to love watching the
1: Oscars. I think this past year was the 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 fewest number of movies I think I've ever watched, just with lot, all the travel and job changes and everything. So there's a couple I definitely need to uh, uh, either in the theaters or uh, on streaming once they come out. I uh, still haven't seen 1917 or oh, that's um, a great
0: movie. Or, I I loved it.
1: It was edge of your seat, amazing. Or a Parasite is another one I really want to get to, but. Um, yeah. Anyway, um, so here at the top of the show, um, reminder to anyone out there that wants to help support us, you can go to Patreon dot com, search for Double Loop Podcast there, and send a couple bucks our way, or go to double dot com and uh, buy some stuff from our store because you know we need a new T shirt. Uh, summer's coming. Anyway, we have another interview to get to, um, so we're gonna just cut right over to that. Unfortunately. I had something come up last minute and wasn't able to join Glenn uh, for for this, but uh, it's a, it's a fantastic thing, and we'll talk a little bit about it after uh, that's all over. Uh, so we'll cut now to uh, to Glenn's discussion with Simon Bunter.
0: All right, everybody. Well, I am here with Simon Bunter. He is a fingerprint expert in the, in the United Kingdom. Welcome, Simon. How are you doing?
2: Hi, I'm great. Thanks, Glenn. Thanks for the invite.
0: Yeah, it's been a while since uh, I've actually physically seen you. I think uh, I think we maybe met in I don't know what 2012 or so. Maybe
2: there was it Gla- Glasgow 2014, the fingerprint um, society conference. I remember your magic tricks and your excellent uh, presentations.
0: Well, okay, okay. So it was Scotland. It was the first time that we met then. Yeah, okay, 2014. Yeah, it's it's been a while.
2: Yes, it has been
0: too long. And. And I I will say this too, Simon, and for the listeners, often when people ask me if I can come to a conference and speak and I've got an obligation and I can't, many times I suggest that they reach out to you because I was so impressed with your presentation and your cases. So if there are any listeners out there who are, moderating conferences, coordinating conferences, looking for an international speaker, I do suggest that they reach out to you and hopefully they'll enjoy the stories that you're going to tell us today as well.
2: Fingers crossed. Thank you for the recommendations.
0: Sure. All right. So if, if we could, uh, Simon, why don't we tell the listeners a little bit about your background, how you became a fingerprint expert and where you're currently working.
2: Well, I never really knew what I wanted to do, even sort of through school and college, and a bit of a background in maths and physics. I originally applied to do a degree in accounting, but at the last minute, managed to get a place on an applied science and forensic measurement course. Um, throughout that degree course, people always said to me, Oh, you'll be working for the police then once you graduate. And I always kind of, uh, sort of took a little exception of that and just thought, not necessarily, there's lots of other opportunities. And of course, I ended up working for the police. Um, <laughs> started as a, a trainee in a fingerprint bureau, which was a bit of a, a step down, to be honest, from a degree course, from being... Um, working in a very sort of high-intensity environment for three years, uh, the the fingerprint trainee course only required two GCSEs, so two English and maths qualifications that you would take when you're 16 years old. It certainly didn't require a degree. Um, I eventually became an expert after about four years, but to be honest, working in the fingerprint bureau for the police, I didn't particularly like it. I didn't find it particularly scientific. Um, but it did give me great experience for, for the for the job that I'm doing now. Having that background and knowing what actually goes on in a bureau allowed me to read between the lines of um, a fingerprint officer's statements, shall we say. But when right. the opportunity to yeah. came came up to work for Keith Bora Consultants, um, I, I took it with both hands. It was a great opportunity, and there's very few opportunities like this in the UK to actually work in the independent uh, fingerprint sector.
0: So in in the UK, unlike the United States, then it sounds like there aren't a lot of private consulting forensic agencies in the US. Any person can just basically, well, we say put up a shingle, uh, put up a website and go, hey, I'm a forensic expert. But in the UK, even the do the even the private examiners have to register as a fingerprint expert with the National Registry. And it's a little more complicated to become a private consultant.
2: Most independent fingerprint experts, in my experience, our competitors, if if you like, in the independent marketplace, um, they tend to be retired heads of bureau. So people who've retired and then become self-employed, now they might be on the books of other forensic firms, but with Keith Borer Consultants, we're all um, full-time salaried um, forensic scientists. Two of us are independent experts. The the National Register of Fingerprint Experts is specifically for experts who work for the police and the home office so once you leave police employment you should no longer actually be on that national register so it's not strictly a national register it's a national register of police
0: experts i see that makes more sense okay Uh, just out of curiosity again for our listeners who might not have perspective how many registered police fingerprint experts would you say there are in the uk just approximately
2: Ooh, that's a good question. Um, I'm not sure. I know when I joined the register, I was number 1,452, but I think that's okay. overall. Um, I'm not quite sure how many there are now. I know a few years ago there were several budget cuts and um, fingerprint bureaus merged together to form regional fingerprint bureaus. I think that may have ended up in, in some job losses. Um, I'm not quite sure how many people there are in total at the moment. I would say a few hundred um, Possibly two or three hundred. That's a sort of wild guess on my part. All
0: right. So why don't you tell us a little bit about what you specifically do at Keith Bohr and what Keith Bohr is is all about?
2: um uh, keith borer we have about 30 forensic scientists who specialize in different areas of forensic science um i used to say to solicitors the only thing we don't do is, is handwriting but in the last few years we've taken on about three handwriting analysts and we now we have um accreditation for, for handwriting work to be done um so we essentially deal with all types of forensic science the only things we don't really do with now is like medical opinions um but if it comes to forensics, where you're your one-stop shop, we like to think, to be able to – for a solicitor, if there's several types of forensic evidence in the case, they can just come to us and our different experts will be able to handle uh, all their forensic needs and, and queries.
0: Now, I would imagine then, much like in the U.S., your private consultancy agency – deals with cases that have already gone through a police laboratory. It would be uncommon or probably unheard of for you to receive the evidence directly from a scene. it's not like the forensic science service, the FSS of the old days where they were actually processing evidence from scenes. You guys come in after, right after a, a bureau. So the
2: majority of work that, that I certainly deal with, um, is, You're right, things that have already gone through the laboratory. So exhibits that have already been treated for fingerprints and fingerprints have been found, and then usually the fingerprints have been identified, and that's where we come in. However, there are certain cases where... The, the police have decided not to treat something for fingerprints, but the defendant solicitors would like us to do so, um, and we can do that, and that's essentially um, our original work that we will carry out. So it's not quite as much as the work that's already been through the police labs, but there is still a proportion of it that we do.
0: Got it. Yeah, that actually, that's exactly like the U.S. We find sometimes that when a case goes through the defense, there is some item that they deemed they didn't need to process or wasn't relevant, but then becomes relevant to the defense's argument and they would like it processed.
2: Yes, absolutely. Yeah. That's what, that's what we get as well. Um, sometimes the, the police are quite reluctant to release the exhibit into our possession, but the very fact that we make the query means that they will go away and treat it um, and do the work that the solicitors want carrying out anyway. Yeah.
0: Yeah, we see that too. So The minute you ask, sometimes the minute you ask to do the actual test or say, well, we we will do it, you're right. They turn around and, and do it themselves. So, Simon, when I first saw your presentation, what I really enjoyed was – it didn't focus so much on what I might call and what we – and Eric and I am referring to the academic aspect of formal source level propositions. You had really good real world examples of the importance of, of activity level propositions where – It it turned out that in many of your cases, what was not at issue was whose fingerprint. That wasn't the issue, but how did it get there or when did it get there?
2: Yes, that's absolutely right. Uh, The the cases that I've given presentations on in the past, there's basically been no disagreement with the fingerprint identification. So it's been accepted by both sides that the fingerprints were made by the defendant. However, when you put that source level evidence into context and look at what the prosecution are alleging and what the defendant is saying, then examining that activity level, it's actually shown that the fingerprints could not have been placed during the offense whatsoever in some cases.
0: Right. So, and my understanding would be that your reports would have activity level propositions actually in the report. So... It, I mean, sure, surely it would discuss source level, but it would also discuss in the report activity level as well as potentially a timing of the fingerprint. And what's important about that in the previous episodes we've been discussing activity level is often in the U.S., those sorts of things are not discussed in the report, but unfortunately only left to discuss during testimony. So there is no formal report. There's no declaration of activity level statements. They only come out during testimony when there's been no technical review of the report. Can you comment a little bit on your reporting practices for activity level?
2: Right. I'm quite surprised to hear that that you don't report activity level um, until the testimony stage. Yes, our reports uh, include the the source level, but also the activity level, particularly if that's what we've been instructed to do. Very often, a defendant might say, well, okay, I accept my fingerprints, or if they are my fingerprints, they were put there on an earlier occasion through legitimate means. For example, I was at a party at the property one month earlier. Therefore, my fingerprints must have persisted. The the prosecution might have... uh, a statement from the, the house owner who says, but that window frame that the fingerprints were on, I cleaned that two weeks before the offense. Therefore, his fingerprints would not have persisted. And they're the type of things we have to consider and comment on. And yes, that certainly goes in our report along with the source level result.
0: Yeah, I, that that was one of the things that we were discussing was just how disturbing Eric and I find that those things are not declared formally in reports but left Often and and sometimes it's because the prosecution doesn't request any of that and it only comes up once the prosecutor learns of the defense's argument and so you, the fingerprint examiner is often caught unawares on the stand by. The by defense's argument, and these questions all come up impromptu on the stand, as opposed to when the fingerprint examiner had a, an opportunity in the laboratory to consider the evidence in light of these propositions. <sighs>
2: Right. Uh, it works slightly different here. What tends to happen in most cases is the fingerprint bureau for the police. Uh, they will affect the source level identification. The defendant will then be interviewed by police. And if he's charged, he will have a solicitor and he will give his account of events. Um, and if he gives an account of events saying that it, it must be there through legitimate means, therefore it was an older fingerprint and a fresh one, then that, was what, that is what I'll consider. And I will produce a report commenting on the activity level. Sometimes what will happen is then my report will be served on the prosecution, they will give it to the police fingerprint expert or possibly the CSI, and they will produce a report commenting on my report. So that's where the activity level usually comes in from the prosecution side, only once it's been raised in my report. Now, sometimes they will stay with two different reports and then the arguments will be had in the witness box at court, or sometimes, in fact, more often recently, what will happen is the... Uh, police expert and myself will get together and put together a joint statement of areas of agreement and disagreement. What that's trying to do is make it a lot easier for the court to know what areas of the forensics that we agree on, for example, the source level, and what areas that we disagree on, for example, how long the fingerprint have lasted.
0: Perfect. Yeah. And for our listeners, I believe that's called hot tubbing, where you get experts from both sides to get together to sort out their differences and focus on what's really relevant for the court to consider.
2: Um, that's not why. what I understand the term hot-tubbing to be. I've actually done hot-tubbing once. I understand hot-tubbing to be, um, instead of one expert, like usually the prosecution expert giving evidence first, and then the defense expert, me, giving evidence afterwards, that the, the hot-tubbing, um, two witnesses stand in the witness box and give evidence at the same time. So I've actually done oh. this once mm-hmm. before in a Crown Court, um, both of us crammed into quite a small witness box, and then <laughs> at the same time, a uh, the, the question will be asked by one barrister to the, the prosecution expert, and then by one barrister, the same question possibly to me, um, and I actually had the opportunity. It was all very new to me. I wasn't even sure whether I was allowed to do it, but the opportunity to turn round and ask my opposing number a question directly to him as well, and that seemed to be accepted by the judge and and the court at the time. I've only done that once, and it was very it was very new. I got the impression it was new to everybody in the court.
0: Oh, okay, um, yeah, that uh, that is different than than I had understood or participated in hot tubbing, where. In fact, actually, as you describe it, it sounds much more like a hot tub. You're crammed in a small uh, space together with somebody uh, (laughs) in in a semi-uncomfortable situation where you're half naked, practically.
2: (laughs) Yes, it was definitely a certain a bikini I was wearing.
0: (laughs) Okay, well, yeah, all right. But it it does sound that that there is this allowance of collaboration or at least working out the issues before they come to court, which – is probably a more productive approach.
2: Yes, uh, I think these days judges in particular, they don't like to just uh, have their jury listen to opposing uh, experts just arguing. They like to clarify exactly what the issues are and if those issues can't be agreed between the experts then it's only those issues that they want the jury to hear and instead of giving evidence for, for several hours and lots of cross-examination they like to just to fo- uh, read out the uh, the agreed facts um, and then the opposing opinions that's just what the, the jury's here so it doesn't become too long and protracted, and the juries get a better idea of what they have to make their decisions on.
0: Oh, that's, that's very fascinating. Well, if, if you could, Simon, why don't you share a couple of your select cases involving activity level, and let's uh, let's discuss a little bit.
2: Okay, well, I'll start with a couple that um, you're probably aware of from the presentation I gave a, f- a few years ago. But since that presentation, there's actually been a few more, it, it seems that – The more these happen, the more interesting they get and the more subtleties and nuances there are to them. But I'll start off with a a basic one, and this involves a a rugby club. Um, This is probably over 10 years old now, but it's still a favourite of mine. And that's because on paper, like so many of these, it appeared to be a very, very strong prosecution case. In fact, I still remember the solicitor's phone call who said, I've been a solicitor for 15 years. I think I've got a pretty good idea of when someone's lying and someone's telling the truth. I think my client is actually telling the truth. But for the life of me, (laughs) the evidence, I cannot figure out how he could be telling the truth. So the circumstances in this case, uh, a rugby clubhouse was burgled. Um, A CSI attended and found several fingerprints, most of which were unidentified or insufficient. But there was one palm print that was found, and that was on a kitchen door inside the building. This was identified to a local mill. Now the local mill in police interview he explained to police that he actually used to play rugby at that club, but he'd stopped playing rugby there four years ago. And in that four years he had not been back inside the clubhouse. So the police went away to find out a bit more information about this in this book to the chairman of the rugby club. He explained that over the last four years that door had been cleaned down several times and something to do with a food fight at a rugby players Christmas party um (laughs) but also 18 months before the offence occurred the door had actually been painted over so what it came down to was this door had been cleaned and painted over therefore any fingerprints that may have been there from four years ago you wouldn't really expect them to persist um I attended the scene and examined the door um And what I could actually find out was that the palm print was formed in an underlying layer of paint being applied more than four years ago. So although the door had been painted 18 months ago, you could actually see the impression in that new layer of paint. But when I managed to peel off that new layer of paint, there was an older layer of paint behind it. I think it was the original paint on the door. And the the guy's palm print was actually formed in that old layer of paint. So what happened is this door had been painted at least four years ago, possibly even longer ago, when the defendant had legitimate access to the rugby club. So he touched it shortly after it had been painted and it had formed this hardened 3D impression in the original layer of paint. 18 months before the burglary, he, uh, the, That door had been painted again, uh, and some of the, it was actually an entire handprint that was there originally, and some of the fingers had been painted over and they weren't visible anymore. But part of that palm print, I don't know if it was just a thin layer of paint, but it just seemed to seep into the furrows of the paint that had been caused by the ridges, and it was still visible. So when a CSI along came along and decided to to powder that area, I think they didn't realize that it was actually in paint. And effectively, what they were lifting was a 3D impression that was in an underlying, very old layer of paint. And when that came out, it was um, staggering, really, because you really did not think that a palm print could survive being cleaned down several times and then being painted over as well.
0: Right. So, I, I mean as you 're pointing out it 's this plastic impression that was able to hold the powder from the cSI, but when lifted, you would not have known it was a plastic impression. It simply looked like a two d lift
2: yes, absolutely in the lift, it looked normal um, it was slightly slightly reversed color, but in not so much a very obvious wear um, yeah. judging by the lift itself, it just appeared like a normal palm print
0: yeah oh that that 's fantastic. All right. Uh, I seem to recall a case of yours where uh, there was maybe a pipe or a piece of metal as well in which a fingerprint appeared to have persisted, and it was either the person that had installed it or had manufactured it. You you had some cases like that too, right?
2: Yes, my drainpipe case. Um, a lot of these cases, they're actually they don't tend to make head, they don't tend to make headlines because they're not um, fingerprint evidence involving serial killers or or bank robberies or anything like that. These are all sort of fairly what we would call um, volume crime, where the um, there's not particularly uh, a vicious assault or anything, and or it's just like a burglary or an attempted theft. This drainpipe case was just the theft of lead flashing from above a kitchen window on a terraced house. Terrace. It was thought that the offender had climbed up a drainpipe, and when the CSI attended, they examined one of the drainpipes and found a thumbprint on it. And this was, again, identified to a, a local male. Now, when the defendant was interviewed by police, he gave a very, very good account. And he actually explained that he fitted the drainpipes to that house 10 years ago. And later, his employer at the time provided a statement and confirmed to police that, yes, this person did work on this house and he did fit those drainpipes. So police asked him... Ten years ten. prior, yeah. Uh, originally, in the police interview, the defendant said, I think I probably worked in that area on those houses, and I think it was six to eight years ago. But when the police spoke to his employer at the time, he actually confirmed, yes, he definitely worked on that house, but it wasn't six to eight years ago. It was ten years ago. Incredible. Incredible. Um so the police in in the interview they asked the this local mail said, Well, okay, if that's true, how could your thumbprint persist for ten years? Now, to be fair to the male, um, that's not really a question you would expect him to be able to answer. That would be a question for someone like like me or you, a fingerprint expert, to be able to answer that question. But fair play to the male, he actually gave probably the answer I would give. He said that when he was fitting those drain pipes, um, he would use substances such as adhesives, silicon grease, WD-40, lots of different substances. And perhaps his thumbprint was actually formed in one of these robust substances. And for, for me, that, that was an, an excellent answer, and it certainly could explain why it would last for 10 years. But the police, not being um, expert in that themselves, they went away and spoke to the CSI, who'd actually lifted the thumbprint. Now, she came up with a, a statement um, and insisted that the fingerprints would not have survived on the drainpipe, mm-hmm. mainly because it was on an external surface. Um, it would be washed away by the rain. The sun would dry it out. It simply would, wouldn't persist. And then it seemed to be a, a comment in relation to the silicon grease and, and the adhesives. In her statement, she said that this print was not in paint, but on the surface. And, but nobody had actually said it was in paint. Uh, it was talking about adhesives and silicon grease. So my examination involved going to the fingerprint bureau and going to the scene to examine the drainpipe. Now, straight away at the fingerprint bureau, when I looked at the lift, something was a bit strange. The the thumbprint in the lift had essentially disappeared. And most of the time, fingerprints in aluminium powder in a lift do not disappear. Uh, I mentioned the fingerprint officer, and he kind of looked at me sheepishly and said, Yeah, I thought you might notice that. (laughs) Um, He was was able to show me and take me into the laboratory and shine a torch from an oblique angle underneath the lift. And sure enough, you you could see it when you did that. But to the naked eye, in normal lighting conditions, you couldn't see it at all. Um, He did explain that he could actually remember this lift coming into the fingerprint bureau. And you didn't even need the lift photographed. He just did his comparison directly against the lift because the print in the lift was very, very clear but it was about nine months later when I did my examination, and by that time it had just disappeared. So straight away I thought there's something not quite right here. When I examined the scene, I looked at the drain pipe, and sure enough, on that drain pipe you could still see the thumb, the thumbprint on it. So it had disappeared from the lift, but is actually still present on the drain pipe. So when you get a, a print still present, so this was nine months after the offence had occurred, I was able to test it and see how robust it was. So I started with a quite a weak rub with my finger. And uh, it did not move. It was very robust. I tried it with a wet cloth, soapy cloth. In the end, I had to use what I think is called a scourer, like a very abrasive kitchen cloth with hot soapy water. And eventually, that print was removed. Now, eventually, when I did remove the print, it wasn't just the print that went, but this kind of oxidized white grey layer that was on the drain pipe. And potentially, that print might have actually been formed in this environmental degradation layer that was on on the drain pipe. Um, but no matter what it was in, it was very robust and very persistent and essentially permanent on the drain pipe. Something that I found out whilst I was there as well was that the offender probably didn't even touch this drain pipe because it was very likely they actually climbed up a different drain pipe on the other side of the window because there was lots of damage to that drain pipe. Um, eventually, the prosecution dropped the case, but not before they took my report back to the CSI. And then the CSI, quite surprisingly to me, turned around and said, well, I'm not an expert in the subject, so I can't really rebut what's in Mr. Bunter's report. Um, but I'm still thinking it was probably, he probably did this. So, But my opinion on that was, well, if the CSI thinks she's not an expert in the subject, why is she providing a statement in the first place to say that in her professional opinion, fingerprints do not persist on this type of surface?
0: Yeah, you are uh, fantastic. You you are making a point that we made a couple of episodes again as well. Uh, it is mind boggling to us that experts are willing to make comments about activity level and, and persistency of fingerprints and very cavalier about it and in whether or not they have the data or not. And often they don't have the data, but yet they're willing to make these statements that in cases like this one are more critical than actually, you know, or at least as critical as the source level identification issues. And while they have that training in source level and are and very well trained in that, once you get into the activity level, many of them lack that training and, and don't have a very strong perspective on persistency of fingerprints or how fingerprints can get on surfaces.
2: Yes, uh, it's an example of the type of what I would call prosecution mindset mindset that we sometimes come up against. It almost seems to be the, the default answer from a police CSI or, or a police fingerprint expert when they're faced with that specific case. Uh, my, it is usually, right, well, sorry, we don't think it is going to last, but we think it must be fresh. And The, the usual um, excuses, if you like, actually come yeah. out. And that could yeah. be, all oh, right, well, it's on an outside surface, the rain would wash it away, or it's on an outside surface, the sun would dry it out. But I think a lot of these assumptions are actually made on the basis that they assume the fingerprint to be in sweat. So, a fingerprint in necrine sweat secreted from the pores can actually be quite fragile and can easily be wiped away. But common sense, more than anything, tells you, and also LOCAD's principle, that when you go around and you touch other things, there's that transfer of substances. So, what you might have on your fingers at, at one time might be a mixture of sweat, but also any contaminants from any other surfaces you've touched. And it also has to be borne in mind like the rugby club door case for example um, the person who touched that door might have had very clean fingers but because of that paint contaminant on the door that's what's caused it to be very robust so if fingerprints are formed in ecrine sweat then potentially yes they might be fragile and they might be wiped away quite easily but that's a massive assumption to make that a fingerprint is in a sweat and it's very often very difficult to determine what a fingerprint is actually formed in
0: yeah that's a it's a fantastic point and in fact in a in previous episodes, we talked about a paper that looked at a number of cases that had testimony where fingerprint experts said exactly that, that fingerprints are fairly fragile. They begin to degrade after 24 to 36 hours. And so when I attended the scene, the fingerprint very quickly adhered to the powder. And therefore, I would expect that this is probably within two to three days old, which is such fallacious thinking, because exactly as you said, there is no evidence that it was actually ecrine at all. And it would, I mean, I, I can't think of any case where the fingerprint examiner had done any kind of uh, analytical testing or some kind of compositional testing on the residue. That just never happens. The assumption is always that they're fragile, but we know that if you have oils or grease from foods or like you described in your case the silicone that material can be actually rather robust and resist i mean significant uh, environmental factors
2: Yes, absolutely. Um, that's one of the first pieces of research I did at Keith Bora Consultants. Uh, what you just described there about, well, fingerprints will degrade after 24, 36 hours, or they adhere to the, the aluminium powder very readily. That was something I was coming across uh, against quite a lot in the early cases that I was working on. So I thought, right, well, well, let's test this. Let's not assume anything. Let's be scientific about it. Those factors that they're talking about, do do they only care for fresh fingerprints Um, and Long story short, what I found out was that there were fingerprints placed in other contaminants that could persist on an outside surface for two and a half years, and they were very good quality, and they adhered to aluminium powder very readily and very easily. So if I could demonstrate that there were fingerprints that could last two and a half years that exhibited all the same indicators that a CSI or a fingerprint officer was using to say they were fresh, then that was quite a good um, rebuttal to that argument.
0: Right. And conversely, the idea that old fingerprints don't adhere to powder or don't look quote unquote fresh is also fallacious because there's no way to control the amount of residue that's on the finger. So you could certainly have limited residue on your finger. You could touch a surface and it might look like an older touch when in fact it was just a limited amount of residue.
2: Yes, I actually used a... Um, An example in court where the the fingerprint, one of the fingerprints I spoke about that was two and a half years old and was very good quality, I had that on one side of the page. and On the other side, I had a very poor quality fingerprint um, that was five minutes old. So I kind of held them them up and said, right, well, one of these fingerprints is two and a half years old. One of them is five minutes old. Um, Can you tell which is which? Um, And it just kind of hammered home the point that you can't determine the age of a fingerprint based on how readily it adheres to powder or or its quality either. You can get very poor quality, faint, fresh fingerprints and very good quality uh, with good clarity, very old fingerprints too.
0: Yep. Fantastic. Yep. All right. So moving on from persistence of fingerprints on surfaces, let's talk a little bit about some of the cases where the handling of the object, the activity of the actor became critical in your case.
2: Okay. um, I have about three cases in this uh, and they're all subtly different. Um, the, the, The how and when the contact occurred for activity level, the two invariably overlap. But the next case I'm going to talk about is to do with the longevity and persistence of fingerprints, but the only way that came about was the mechanism of placement and how basically the the position and orientation of the fingerprints was essentially impossible to achieve during the crime. So this was all to do with a metal security gate. There was an attempted burglary of a flat or apartment on the fourth floor of a tower block. Now, there was a security gate that was fixed to the wall that went across the front of the of the flat door. Now, somebody made an attempt to try and force the security gate open with a crowbar. And there was damage to the lock area just in the middle and to the left of the security gate. Um, essentially, when this offender was making all this noise, the, the tenant of the flat opened the door. The offender saw him and just ran away. So the security gate was not opened. Um, nothing was stolen. Nobody was hurt. The CSI attended, and they found three fingerprints on the very top of the gate. So this gate is about um, two metres high, and there were three fingerprints found um, that were pointing up. And these fingerprints were identified to a local male, again. um, It was his right middle finger, his right ring finger, and his right little finger. Um, Now, it certainly didn't appear consistent with, with forcing the gate, but in The police interview, he gave a no comment interview, but he later said to solicitors in his defense statement that he denied being there. And he actually insisted that he'd never even been in that tower block. Now, the CSI, once they'd actually found the fingerprints, actually took some very good quality photographs, showing exactly where the fingerprints were on the top of the gate, and also showed where the damage was. The damage was a lot lower down, but these fingerprints were were on the very top. But when you looked at the relative position of this middle ring and little finger, they were all kind of in the same plane at the same height, um, which suggested or indicated even that the fingerprints had been curled around the top of the security gate. Hmm. Now, this type of contact was very, very difficult if you stood outside where this offender was supposed to have stood. Um, It was so difficult to achieve, it was almost impossible. It certainly wasn't consistent with with forcing the gate, but it's quite difficult to explain without photographs. But the the defendant's wrist would have to be as high as his fingers, which would mean his elbow would have to go through the security gate. And that was very difficult to achieve because the door was, was in the way. What it was consistent with... However, when you try to think, well, if it's not consistent with that, how could contact have occurred? I just thought that if the security gate was not attached to this wall, if it was just loose and somebody was handling it when it was laid horizontal or carrying it, it would be really easy just to wrap your fingers around the top of the security gate. Um, So I rang the solicitor. Now, I had to be very, very careful with this because the defendant had just said, He'd never even been in that flat. I didn't want to, bearing in mind cognitive bias, I didn't want to tell him what it was consistent with and what it was not consistent with, and then the defendant had to provide a story that just happened to fit with what I'd said. So I rang the solicitor and just said, before I tell you what my results are, I'm just wondering, as the defendant, has he given any information whatsoever in relation to how he may have ever touched a security gate like this? He said, well, it's a funny thing that you mentioned that. When we actually came away from the police interview, he mentioned in passing the only thing he could think of is ten years ago he had a work experience placement while he was at school, and that was at the metal fabricators, and that metal fabricator made lots of different things, one of which was security gates, and he would help the um, his employer on and off the, he would help his employer move the metal gate on off his truck, but that was ten years ago. The position orientation orientation of the fingerprints was actually consistent with that, so it was consistent with him carrying a gate, and um, not whilst it was being attached to the The flat. Um, So, my report essentially said it was not consistent Uh with contact occurring during the offence, but contact could have easily been placed 10 years ago before it was affixed to the wall. So, my report was served, and me, the police officer, and the police fingerprint officer ended up in a, a case conference. When we discussed things at the case conference, actually, sorry. Just before we got to a case conference, the barrister from the defence came in and said, "I've got a, another statement here from the police fingerprint expert, and she said that she's read my report and she agrees with it." So mm-hmm. I immediately thought, "Right, well, okay, so why are we still at court?" And then it became evident <laughs> because he produced a finger, uh, he produced a statement from the police officer. Now the police officer had looked at my report. And he'd went back to the scene, looked at the security gate, and he produced a statement saying it was easy to reproduce those fingerprints; it wasn't impossible at all. And what's more, he'd actually taken photographs to actually show his fingers achieving those positions. So I looked at the photographs, and his fingers were in the wrong positions. There were we were only talking a few millimeters, a centimeter out at the most, but that centimeter made a massive difference to where his arm could have actually been in relation to the security gate. Um, and then. About half an hour later, that was provided with yet another statement from the police fingerprint expert who said, I've spoken to the police officer, seen his photographs, and now I've changed my mind and I disagree with Mr. Bunter's report. So it was really going up and down with with who was agreeing with, with whom. When I spoke to the police fingerprint expert, uh, I said, look, originally you obviously agreed with me. Uh, Now you don't based on these police officers' photographs. Are you aware that the police officer has his fingers in the wrong place? And she said, well, yes, I am. But I think they're close enough and that he could actually achieve that contact. Uh, The only way we could actually really resolve this was for us all to go to the security gate and, and examine it at the scene I found extra prints that showed that the arm would have actually have to have come down from the ceiling um, to wrap around, because there was an inverted palm print on the other side as well. I also found more prints from a left hand further down the gate, and when we considered all this, it actually was consistent with the defendant holding the gate at one end while somebody else was probably holding it at the other end. And it was literally impossible when all this was considered at once to um, have contact whilst that gate was across the door. The police officer eventually backed down when he realised that the original prints were still there and they seemed to be formed in some kind of veneer. But the only reason we got to that point was because it was my report saying it was virtually impossible to achieve that type of contact when that gate was across the door.
0: uh, That's amazing. So the the position, the angle, uh, where they were located, all of those things that sometimes, unfortunately, in the US are not well documented on a lift or or in a photograph, which became pretty critical in this case. And without knowing the exact location, orientation of the fingerprints, you wouldn't have been able to have made those kinds of statements.
2: Yes, it's quite interesting, this case, because originally all we were instructed to do was look at the, the source level. So the only thing they wanted was, are they his fingerprints? And once we confirmed, yes, they were his fingerprints, they then came back and said, well, can you go into a bit more detail and say how contact occurred? It was only then when we really looked into it, and I tried to reconstruct them on like certain services around the office. So I just thought, this is very difficult, actually. And the more I looked into it, the more I realized that it was it was very as I say, implausible, but almost impossible to achieve. It was only when we later went to the scene, we saw that there were other fingerprints and it gave a much clearer indication of how contact occurred that actually demonstrated that it was impossible and contact had to, had to have occurred when the gate was loose. The, the important point, I think, about this one, if you compare it to the rugby club and the drain pipe, for example, um, the defendants in those cases, they had been to the rugby club, although several years earlier and he had fitted the drain pipe at that house with this case at some point the security gate was portable it wasn't always at that tower block so it sounds like what's happened is he's had contact with it in the workshop and then it's been transported to the tower block and then fitted but when you go to a scene as a csi and you look at a security gate that's fixed to the wall you don't really consider that a portable item so when fingerprints are found on it it really seems to suggest that that person has been to that location. And in this case, he actually it didn't look like he had.
0: Yeah, fantastic.
2: So the, the, the most recent case that I've had has involved a window. And the solicitor rang me. And the first question she says was, look, I know this is a silly question, and the answer is going to be no, but can fingerprints survive for 15 years? I said, well, actually, the, the short answer is yes, but can you give me some more details and I can give you a, a more, more accurate answer? She said, well, my client is charged with the burglary of a school. Um, £6,000 worth of iPads were stolen, um, and his fingerprints were found on the inside of a point-of-entry window frame. And there's a statement from the CSI saying it's consistent with him climbing in. Right, well, okay, does your uh, client, does he give an account for his for, um, for his fingerprints? Yeah, so my client actually says that he worked in a window factory about 15 years ago. I said, well, have you got any information to to actually back this up, to to demonstrate that that's correct? And she said, yes, we've actually got a statement from his employer. Uh, His employer said that, yes, that person did work for that window company. Um, The company fitted the windows to that school, and that was approximately 15 years ago. And their records showed that that defendant was involved in the manufacturing of those specific windows in the factory. Wow. Um, And – but – the defendant did not attend the school to fit them. He basically manufactured them in the factory, but didn't actually go to the school. Now, from my point of view, before we actually do any work with fingerprints, oh, there's your answer, really. Um, yeah. He's given a, a very good answer, which has been backed up by this uh, this third party. Um the only other explanation really would be it would be a massive coincidence. He just happened to work for that window factory, and then 15 years later he happened to beggle the same school. Um, but what made it a bit more complex is the head teacher of the school had provided a lot of cleaning rotor documentation. She said when she joined the school in 2006 that those windows were already in place, so that fitted with the timeline of what him and his, his former boss were saying. But she said that the inside of the frames were cleaned at least once a month And it was also with cleaning products. And sometimes it was steam cleaned uh, as well. And when we worked this out, over the last 15 years, if it was cleaned once a month, what she was saying was that specific area where the fingerprints were found on the inside of the frame had actually been cleaned 180 times. So when I examined the scene, I found the fingerprints, and they were on the inside of the window. They were on the vertical part of the window, so um, a square window, and on the left-hand side, as you look from the outside, that the fingerprints were, were there on that vertical part. They were not really consistent with climbing in. There was not where I'd expect somebody to place their fingerprints if they climbed through the window. But the thing is, when I reconstructed the contacts, I to do so, I actually had to do through an open window with at least my head and my shoulders and my fingers going into the school. And one fingerprint in particular that was certainly not consistent with climbing in, but it was consistent with him being inside the classroom, stood on an internal window ledge and actually holding onto that vertical part of the frame. So as the evidence stood, it was not particularly good for him. The CSI probably was was wrong. It was not consistent with climbing in, but it did appear to put him at least partially through the window and one of them even inside the classroom. But I had to take a step back from this particular case and just think about a forensic strategy and the best way to approach this. If what the defendant was seeing was correct and he had touched the window frames in the factory then surely his fingerprints would be elsewhere too. It wouldn't just be around the point of entry of the window. So my aim was to examine areas of the window frame that you wouldn't expect the offenders to touch or be very difficult for the offenders to touch as well, and actually found many fingerprints. I applied aluminium powder all the way up the vertical part of the frame and onto the very top bit of the frame that I could only reach with a ladder. It was over three metres off the floor. And many fingerprints were developed, and in particular... Um, of of particular interest to me were two fingerprints on the very top horizontal ones so this part of the frame that was over three meters from the floor similar to the security gate these fingerprints were actually curled under and the only way contact could have occurred um is before that those window frames were placed in situ in that school the ceiling got in the way and it was impossible for the hand to get in there to place those fingerprints So I took photographs of these fingerprints, I went back to my office, I compared them against the defendant's fingerprints, and sure enough, they were the defendant's fingerprints. So the the evidence that was found, the fingerprints that were found by the CSI, again, we couldn't really say how long they, they had lasted. But the other fingerprints on there that could not have been placed by the offender were made by the defendant. And those fingerprints could have only been placed before the window frames were put in situ in the school. And as we know from all the evidence, that was 15 years ago. So this extra bit of evidence that I was able to find showed that the defendant was correct and it showed that his fingerprints could last for 15 years.
0: Oh, that, that, another br- brilliant case. It's fantastic. It's using additional evidence not collected to make the point that these could have persisted and – And as well as handling in a position and location that would you would not expect to have a high probability under the condition of climbing through the window.
2: Yes, Uh, I mean these. You have these indicators, these red flags, if you like, where you think, well, they're not really consistent with with climbing in, but at the same time, um, on the face of it, they don't seem like innocent contacts. But when you actually find that uh, there's lots of fingerprints all over, and some of these fingerprints were impossible to be placed. with. I, I could not have stood there on the ladder and re, reproduce these fingerprints in, in that orientation. Um, I would not have been able to do it even all the way up the top of the ladder. So the only way he could have done it was actually in the window factory before they were fitted. So it was actually absolutely fitting with his, with his version of events. Um, eventually,
0: it was the day before the case was due to be heard in trial, the prosecution actually um, dropped the case. Amazing. That's a, that's another great story. Thank you. Thank you for sharing that. No problem at all. Uh, and any others related to a similar kind of activity? Yes, yeah, so I've got one
2: recently, which is um, it's a little more long winded. So stop me if I um, if I go on too long about this. But again, this appeared to be very strong evidence initially. The fingerprint evidence, in the end, to be honest, it didn't really assist either way. Um, I couldn't really demonstrate when contact occurred. It wasn't like the other cases. Uh, I couldn't say that it was a very robust mark and therefore contact must have occurred for several years. But crucially, there was other eyewitness evidence in the case, and the eyewitness evidence significantly undermined the fingerprint evidence. So this was an armed robbery at a public premises. There was a wooden counter with staff on one side and customers on the other side. One of the eyewitnesses said the offender had actually vaulted over the middle of the counter from the customer side to the staff side, and they'd used one hand to do so, and this was in the middle of the counter, and that offender took money from the cash register and left. When the CSI attended, they found a palm print in the middle of the counter, and the staff member at the premises explained that prior to opening that day, and the offence had happened just after they'd opened, that she had cleaned, washed, and polished that counter um, just before opening. Now, that palm print was identified to, again, a local mill. I think that the moral of the story here, Glenn, is that it would never be a local mill, because these are the people <laughs> who keep, seem to get their fingerprints, get, keep getting found. Um, but all this evidence quite seemed fitting with the allegations. Now, we didn't get instructed originally in this case. Um, there's issues with funding, shall we say. Because we do this activity-level reporting, uh, we have to charge a bit more than just doing the source-level reporting. Um, but this case originally went to uh, a, an expert who provided a cheaper quote, again, a, an independent expert hired by the defense. Um, and he didn't really carry out the same activity level uh, report that we would do at the same activity level examination. But he produced a report that actually went a step further than what the prosecution was saying. He said this palm print was consistent with vaulting over the counter. It was not in a natural position while stood on the customer side of the counter. It is unlikely that this defendant left his palm print inadvertently at an earlier time because staff had cleaned it, and the fact that the customer side of the counter was accessible to the public did not alter the situation at all. The very final line of his report said, I cannot suggest to you how evidence of the presence of this palm print could be gainfully challenged. Now, that was quite a statement from an independent um, fingerprint expert report, and actually went quite a few steps further than what the prosecution were already saying. Interesting. Uh, Yeah, it it, it gets better. (laughs)
0: Um,
2: (laughs) The the defendant gave a no comment interview, but uh, later in a defense statement, he insisted it wasn't him. He didn't really give a specific um, explanation. So it wasn't, for example, I fitted those drain pipes. His only explanation was that he must have been there some time before, but he couldn't really recall a specific occasion. So everything so far is a very strong prosecution case. My fingerprint examination, um, as I said before, it didn't really produce a definitive answer either way, but I did notice some anomalies or unusual aspects, what I called red flags. I thought the following was a bit unusual. The CSI found the palm print on the wooden surface without any development powder. Now, it's, it's not unheard of, but again, slightly out of the ordinary. He basically used a torch, and he photographed the palm print using this torch. Now, He photographed it with the torch at several angles and sections of the palm print appeared and disappeared depending on the angle of the torch. Now, other things that did that were scratches in the counter. So the scratches would appear and disappear depending on the light. So if scratches are indented into the counter and the ridges behaved in in the same way, I did start to think, well, are the ridges actually formed in something? And also Mm -hmm. the, the ridges, the palm print, it looked like a 3D impression. But um, it wasn't still present on the counter when I went to the scene, so I couldn't really test how, how robust it was. So individually, these observations didn't really um, demonstrate the age of the palm print or whether it would have survived the cleaning. But I wouldn't expect to see these types of um, factors with it was just a normal palm mark in sweat. So my report basically said look, if it is a palm mark in a crying sweat, I would expect the washing, cleaning, and polishing damaged it or, or removed it. However, We don't know what the palm print is in. If it is in a contaminant, then it might be robust and therefore potentially it could survive the cleaning.
0: Yeah, makes sense.
2: So at at this point, the the police fingerprint officer um, entered the fray. He examined the scene and he produced a report as well. Now he disagreed that potentially the palm print could have persisted and lasted through the the cleaning. He said he placed his palm print and sweat on the counter and he wiped it away easily. Well, I wouldn't really expect anything different. Um, He placed his palm print in sweat, in Eccrine Sweat, Um, and I would expect Eccrine Sweat to be wiped away easily. But the point in this case was that we didn't know what it was in, so we didn't know whether it was in sweat or not. He also said there was no evidence of disturbance to the palm print, but there actually was. You could see part of the palm print looked like it had been wiped, Um, and eventually in court he did actually uh, accept that. He also said it was a high traffic area of the counter and lots of customers would actually touch there. And he said if it had survived the cleaning, expect to see other prints, marks and stains, and there were none. But I was able to point out that there are actually about six other prints, marks or stains near that palm print. And again, he, um, he did have to accept that in court. He said there were no indications that the palm mark had persisted for an extended period of time. But I pointed out all my observations, um, and he said he just said it wasn't unusual for a palm print to be uh, visible without development powder. The appearing and disappearing was quite normal, and he just insisted that the print was not in 3D. He said it was a 2D print, um, and he basically summarised it all by saying this palm print had all the hallmarks of a fragile mark now at this point this just looks like two experts may be arguing there's no clear path of who might be right who might be wrong or how long this palm print more importantly could have persisted so what seemed like the simple disagreement um become a lot more interesting when we actually considered the eyewitness evidence so you had the member of staff who said that this person the offender had vaulted over the bar but there were three other people in the premises who were robbed as well now the eyewitness the member of staff who said they'd vaulted over the bar. When I went to examine the scene, um, she informed me that they'd vaulted over the bar with their right hand. Now, this was quite important, so I, I said to her, Are you sure it was the right hand they vaulted over the bar with? And she said, Yes. There was actually a left palm mark that was found on the bar. Hmm. Two other eyewitnesses said that rather than actually vaulting over the bar with one hand, the offender ran round the corner of the bar, went through a hatch, and went a completely different route to get to this cash register. Also, three eyewitnesses described the expert as slim build. They all used exactly the same phrase, all three of them, slim build. At court, I saw the defendant, and the defendant was absolutely huge. There was no way he could possibly have been described um, as slim build, and photographs were produced in court, to show him his his build, his physique at the time of the offence, and he was a very similar stature. And from a fingerprint point of view, one of the most important ones, one of the eyewitnesses said the offender was wearing gloves, specifically (laughs) dark-coloured fingerless gloves. So we're talking about a palm print here being placed while somebody was reported to be wearing gloves. Now, eyewitness evidence can be unreliable, but if any one of these were correct... Then the palm print that was found must have survived the cleaning described by the member of staff. Uh, the defendant was eventually found uh, not guilty, but this took an awful lot of work um, and arguing and disagreement between experts to actually get to this point. But this case did make me actually take a step back and, and consider how other people perceived the strength of fingerprint evidence. Um, I mean, when you think about it, the, the first independent expert who was hired by the defence and the police expert, they both knew about the eyewitness report regarding the gloves. Yeah, even though they were aware of that, the independent expert said he could not suggest how the presence could, of the palm print could be gainfully challenged. And the police expert said it bore the hallmark, hallmarks of, of a fragile mark that could have survived the cleaning. And that just sort of made me think that, well, these two propositions are mutually exclusive, so one must be right and one must be wrong. Uh, and because they're on the side of, of fingerprints, they've maybe just kind of assumed that the eyewitness evidence must be wrong and the fingerprint expert right. And I think it's just one of these cases where it makes you take a step back from fingerprints and makes you just think next time about being careful not to place too much emphasis on fingerprint evidence and fingerprint evidence alone.
0: Yeah, that actually is a wonderful point. Also, again, something we discussed in previous episodes about the this importance of this contextual information, which and, you know, you even said yourself, you, you have to use a little bit of caution to make sure you're not swayed by this bias. But a forensic scientist who is considering all aspects of the case needs this information to properly put everything in context. And to be able to evaluate the significance of the evidence. I mean, it's amazing when you said that, you know, there's at least one account of the person wearing gloves. How critical is that information if you're trying to, you know, trying to figure this? And well, I mean, the other stuff, too, is great. You know, whether or not he vaulted over or ran around, used his left or right hand. I mean, like you said, all every one of those pieces, whether or not they're correct or not, are important to consider the possibility of finding the evidence under one of those scenarios or the others. And it's, 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 it's a fantastic case.
2: Yes, uh, it was one of the most interesting cases I've ever done. Uh, The point about the gloves and it being um, relevant as well, this was one of the cases where I had to get together with the police expert and we had to put together a statement of points of agreement, what we agreed on. So again, this was like the position orientation of of the palm print, the the source level. Um, But when it came to the gloves, he originally wanted um, the paragraph about the palm print could not have been placed if the offender was wearing gloves. He wanted that taking out, which I was quite surprised by. And I asked him why he wanted it taking out of the joint statement, and he said it wasn't relevant. That really, really made, made me um, take a step back because how can an offender who's reported to be wearing gloves how can that not be relevant when a palm print is found? Um, I, I was quite surprised by, by that reaction from him.
0: Yeah, uh, do you know if if the witness said they were, for example, latex gloves or they were, you know. Um men's leather you know any description of what the gloves looked like
2: yes they described them as dark colored fingerless gloves so it wasn't just a general they were wearing gloves they'd actually seen the gloves on them and described them as dark colored fingerless gloves
0: Oh, fascinating. And we've seen, you know, and uh, having more crime scenes myself, that if you wear latex gloves after a long period of time, you can get some diffusion through a latex glove because it's not a it's not a perfect impermeable barrier. But I mean, as you just described, yeah, leather fingerless gloves like that. Uh, all right. Totally different story.
2: Yes. Um, I assume they were made of wool because I think the only fingerless gloves I've ever seen have tend to be woolen. Um, but yeah, it's it's kind of the opposite of what you'd expect. If you were wearing fingerless gloves, you might expect to find fingerprints there, but certainly not palm prints. Now, there's sure. always there's always other arguments to, to the points that, that I'm making, and one of them for the gloves would be well, perhaps the glove had ridden up. Um, but we are talking about the the length, almost the length of the palm, from below the left little finger all the way down to the to the wrist, almost, and plus other parts of palm as well. And I was actually looking for any marks that might have been left by by a glove possibly being written up under the fingers uh, and there was nothing there whatsoever
0: Now, oh, fantastic well, Simon, I, I won't keep you any longer. I appreciate you giving some time here on a uh, Friday evening. And I hope our listeners enjoyed your many stories. And I know you've got many, many more. So, I, again, I, I really would encourage if any of our listeners are planning conferences and looking for uh, a, a great speaker with great stories and great visual uh, images. Uh, you know, like I said, I. I've seen these. I know how interesting it is to to see these cases up on the on the screen. I hope they'll reach out to you. Uh, Can you give our listeners uh, some contact information if they want to reach out to you?
2: Yes. If you'd like to email me, my email address is simon.bunter at Keithborer.co.uk. That's probably the best way to get in contact with me. Um, I'm also on LinkedIn as well if you'd like to contact me that way.
0: Perfect. Hey, uh, one one question for you. So your your accent to my ear sounds a bit north of England, North England. Uh, where about are you from? Now, if I had to guess, I would I would say Manchester area. Um, kind of close, um, northeast rather
2: than the northwest. I'm from Hartlepool, so that's the Teesside area, south of Newcastle, um, towards yeah, okay. Middlesbrough, that type of area.
0: Okay. Yeah I, I I didn't think so far as yorkish but okay all right
2: Yeah I, I'd say so further north of york but uh south of newcastle
0: fair enough all right Well thank you again and uh it was uh it was great talking to you Simon uh best of luck to you and and keep on uh, having these amazing cases
2: No problem thanks for the invite I've really enjoyed talking about it thanks Glenn Great take care Take care now bye
1: Wow Glenn I I am so jealous that I was not able to to sit in for the actual discussion. Um, well, I, I mean, that it, was fantastic. If you know it's like
0: me, I I didn't say a whole lot. No, I mean, you I just, That's true. I just I got to sit there and listen, and and I knew this because I've seen his presentation before. And again, you know, he had a few new cases, but his, his cases are great, and they just emphasized all these points that we've been making over the last last couple of weeks. Except right. they were real cases with real people and real outcomes. I I, I loved it.
1: no uh, and the and uh, you talked a little bit about the accent at the end, and that was that's something I was thinking about actually the whole time. Is where exactly is his accent from? I I've been watching a lot of um, BBC game panel shows. <laughs> <laughs> I've talked about QI before, but there's another yeah. a couple other ones, um uh Would I Lie to You? And uh eight out of ten cats does Countdown. Uh, <laughs> that are you'd like that one actually, Countdown. It's a it's a popular British game show. It's been running forever. Anyway, the uh, the cases he talked about, um some of these just kind of blow me away that and then make me kind of think <sighs> To, you know, how this may, relating out to, you know, the casework I used to do, if, just trying to think, is anything like that could have happened in any of the casework I came across? Sure. And the instances of how, you know, he was able to find out, you know, that this person just happened to have this job or happened to have this access previously was information, you know, I would never get, but, you know, also seems uh, so you know, crazy that, 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 you know, this would even come out and it just kind of makes you think of, well, how often could this happen? But you just, there's just not enough information to put all the pieces together. Does that make sense?
0: Yeah. Yeah. No, these were the cases that he discovered this in. How many other cases does this not get discovered in? No, I, I mean, it brings up such a fantastic point is we have to remember And make this distinction in our head. We are not making the case. We're going there to testify to source attribution. And that's it. And we should not. And it's so tempting. I've done it myself hundreds of times likely, especially very early in my career. I'm the fingerprint examiner. I'm making the case. I'm catching the bad guy. My evidence is the bomb and it's going to be the the linchpin in this case. All I'm saying is he touched the surface and I have to I ha, and you know again that's the that's the whole message of these things is that this aspect of activity we should not be substituting we the examiner should not be substituting source equals guilt that's the jury's job that's the prosecutor's job to prove that it's defense's duty to try to dismantle that that's it's um it, these are really good lessons for examiners
1: Yeah, and and even thinking back on the rare occasion where, you know, just I would get information saying, you know, well, this person at some point had access to the house in years past, but there was no kind of follow-up. So, I was just like, well, you know, I can't say when it was left, and just kind of left it at that, and the trial kind of went forward, and it kind of made me think back to, you know, our... Our discussion of the staircase right we're talking about how uh or even uh, making a murderer you know having the resources to investigate and have a lawyer on your side you know hire a company like uh the one that simon works for to do this investigation and find you know this stuff out as opposed to just kind of leaving it as a possibility one way or the other uh, yeah obviously you know the defendants in these cases probably would have been convicted if they hadn't done this work. Yeah, yeah. So which one was your favorite?
0: Well, uh, the uh, the one about the school I, I really enjoyed because, I mean, that to me was just this great use of going back and looking for additional evidence yeah. that was missed. I, I, I really did enjoy that one. I, I mean, I enjoyed all of them, but – That one was kind of nice. I I remember a couple others he didn't discuss in this that were in his presentations I liked too because they they dealt more with handling of the object and the location of the fingerprints and what the activity might have meant. But I mean, probably the school one stood out the most.
1: Yeah, just, you know, that's just amazing. Going back to, to as a defense expert to the scene to process things, I that just sounds insane to, to my ears, but um, obviously you know really clearly showed that uh, you know, when he found those other prints there that yeah that that, that's, that was likely the source of the uh, the one that was initially found yeah and you uh, what about you I, I really liked actually the one in the paint right mm-hmm. the, uh, and made me really think um, and wonder if they, if they had done secondary lifts of of uh any of this stuff. I've definitely seen in processing when you have a plastic impression like that, that as you do multiple lifts, it doesn't like with usual happens. It doesn't just slowly go away. You just get a nice clean lift like every time. So maybe kind of wonder if that, if there were these multiple lifts and I guess he kind of did that on his own going back and looking at that, uh, that surface, but the, the technician initially gathering that evidence, um, if they could have, or would have seen that or noticed that if they had done uh, multiple lifts off of that surface. But it's just crazy that you could have a, you know, leave your impression, your palm impression in paint right after it was painted and that what was it? 15 years, 10 years later after the, the door has been cleaned how many times and then painted over again, that that, that could still be there. And, uh, but you know, under those circumstances, uh, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah.
0: And again, the, the, just as message of most of the time we don't have that information. We have the lift, and we we have to not jump to conclusions about activity and guilt. I mean, these you know the crime, these things we talked about in previous episodes. It's just about source, and we should we should be pretty clear about that. That's all we're all we're saying.
1: All right, so Glenn, I think we're gonna do one more episode a little bit on this topic right
0: yeah i i think we'll we'll put a fine point on this and then tie a little bow and and uh yeah discuss about some of the research and maybe what could be said if you had the technology and what the
1: limits of the technology and research are at the moment right so uh yeah definitely look forward to that uh and we'll probably include some of the discussion from where you're going to be this week uh right yeah, I'm, in fact, leaving tomorrow for Washington,
0: D.C., starting this NIJ-sponsored, NIST-sponsored committee for human factors and DNA. So, and, I, and looking at the list of attendees or proposed attendees, some of the folks on there are what I recognize to be specialists in DNA activity level. So I'm looking forward to probable discussions about activity level amongst that group as well, and I'll – Hopefully be able to bring some of that and be able to report on it. All
1: right, fantastic. Um, And then what do you got coming up, Glenn?
0: Well, again, I have some classes I've talked about before, but if people are interested, go to Ron Smith and Associates, have the Advanced ACE V class. We have spots open. If you're a Canadian listener, we have spots open in the Calgary class at the end of March, March 23rd through the 27th. And in the United States, the next Advanced ACE V class is April 20th through the 24th in the New Jersey area. Beyond that, got a couple of classes with John Black and adding others all the time, including another practical answers to challenging questions in the courtroom class nice. with uh, attorney brendan max and carrie uh, hall so go to Ronsmith and look for those
1: classes we'd love to see you in them all right fantastic all right uh, contact us glenn Damn. at elite dot services.com or eric at ray forensics.com at double loop pod for twitter and instagram double loop podcast dot com is our website where we got our store and everything So uh, thanks for listening again, Um, and uh, remember the opinions expressed on the show are those of the speaker, not necessarily anyone that they work for, and we'll talk to you guys next time. Bye, everybody. Have a good week.